Good morning. How y'all doing? Great, good, awesome. Uh, beautiful weekend. Do y'all have good plans later on today? I hope so. Um, yesterday I planted my garden, which is just like a sign of hope in my life, so it's good. Um, my name is John Anderson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Door Creek, and it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time or second time or third time. Uh, it's great to have you with, you, uh, with us. Uh, great to be with you. There you go. Um, let me start off this morning with a question, and this is just to kind of get us all thinking in the same direction. So here's the question, and just think about the answer in your head. Uh, what are some of the first character qualities that pop into your mind when you think about a person of greatness? Or let me phrase that just a little bit differently. What are some of the character qualities that first pop into your mind when you think about a great leader? Now this morning, we are going to be diving into a passage and we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known and greatest leaders in all of Scripture. And we're going to see how he exhibits this essential quality of greatness that I believe we often and all too easily forget in our culture today. So you ready to dive in? Like three of you, great. <laughs> all right, uh, just before we get into Scripture, I just want to take a moment, I don't usually do this, but I want to just start off with prayer, just to kind of center our hearts. So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that we had an opportunity just moments ago to sing and worship. And I pray that this would be a continuation of worship as we look at your word together. Uh, and thank you, and I praise you that you're a God that speaks. That you speak through your people, that you speak through your word, and you speak somehow mysteriously when we gather together in community. And so thank you that you are here in all your power and glory, which is a mystery to us. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and also faith to follow wherever you're leading. In your name, amen. All right. Now, if you've been uh, hanging out with us for the last few months, you know this, but we are about four months now, I think, into the storyline uh, of the Bible, which is where we're basically going through the entire story of Scripture uh, over the course of the year. So we started in January in Genesis, and we'll end next January in Revelation. Uh, now, most recently, we've been going through Judges and Ruth. And if you've been with us or you know this part of the Bible, you know that this is not exactly the best time for the nation of Israel. Now, today we're going to be entering the story focusing on Israel's greatest king, King David. Now, David is such a key uh, figure in Scripture that we're actually going to be spending kind of like a mini-series within the greater series, four weeks on the life of David. And I'm excited to kind of launch that this week, and then we have it for the next three weeks. And part of the reason we're doing this is because more is written about David in the Old Testament than any other person. In fact, there's 66 chapters written about this one individual. Uh, and then in the New Testament, there's 59 different references to him. And not only can you read about David's life in First uh, and Second Samuel, but also First Kings, First Chronicles. And if you want insights into his thoughts, his feelings, his emotions, uh, you can read any number of the psalms that are attributed to him. In fact, 73 different psalms are attributed to the person of David. And in both First Samuel 13, 14, and then much later in Acts 13, 22, uh, David is described as being a man after God's own heart. So there's all kinds of content about this person. But it raises, for me at least, some fascinating questions. And I hope, you br I hope to bring you into the, what gets me excited about these questions. For example, what does it mean, really, for David to be a man after God's own heart? 
And why is there so much within Scripture about this one individual? And then finally, just because like, I'm a little bit selfish, what does it have to do with my life? What does it have to do with our lives today? Is there anything about this example of David that, that applies to how we live in this modern context? And I think these are fascinating in part because, uh, as many of you probably would know, David, while exhibiting many wonderful qualities of leadership, was also a deeply, deeply flawed individual. Just a couple examples. He very publicly commits adultery, and then he goes on to commit murder. He's not a great parent, not even by a long shot. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to be looking at a story uh, where his, one of his sons is trying to kill him. And so probably, I think, maybe the better question is, what exactly did David get right? Now, right, because that's not a great resume. That's not like who we're looking for in leadership most generally. And yet, again, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. Now, to better understand the importance of David, it helps to understand a little bit more about the context of how he fits into the greater story of the Bible. So the primary narrative about David is found in First and Second Samuel in our Bibles. <clears throat> and originally... This, uh, it's two books in our, in our Bibles, but originally this is just one very long book. And the only reason it's separated was because of length. And First and Second Samuel, they cover roughly about 100 years of the history of Israel. And they tell the story of how they went from a bunch of different tribes ruled by judges to being united under one rule, under one kingdom, under one king. And broadly, broadly summarized, First uh, Samuel uh, starts off with the people of Israel coming to Samuel, who's the last of the judges, as well as a prophet. <clears throat> and they come, and I can't help but hear or read this passage with kind of like a whiny teenage voice. Uh, maybe you'll, you'll know why in a second. So they come to Samuel, and they're basically like, we want a king too. And the reason they want a king is because they're looking at the nations all around them, and they all have kings. So I picture kind of like, I don't know, like I worked with middle school for a long time, uh, students. So I picture like a sixth grader who's like, Mom, Dad, I want a phone because all my friends have one. This is kind of like the voice, and maybe that's just me, I don't know. But this is the voice I hear when I read this story. And so the nation of Israel is coming to Samuel saying, we want a king too. And Samuel, initially, he responds very strongly against this request. Because Israel is supposed to be different. Yahweh is supposed to be their king. But after basically God says, let them have their way, uh, Samuel goes out, he follows God's lead, and he anoints the first king of Israel. And it's a man named Saul. Now, Saul, on paper, is everything a king should be. First uh, Samuel 9 tells us that uh, Saul was good-looking, he was strong, and that he was a head taller than the average man. Now, just as a quick side note, as a short person, <laughs> I just want to say I don't think it's a prerequisite for leadership <laughs> to be tall. Can I get an amen from my short people? You guys, last night it was like 90% short people. We all have some complexes we got to work out here. All right, where, what, what, here we go, here we go. Okay, so despite Saul's impressive resume, and it is an impressive one, his rule is a, an incredibly rocky one. In fact, he quickly moves into disobedience, and then he is punished by God basically by being disqualified to be king of God's people. And so this, this is where David enters the story. So while Saul's still king, at, at least in the governmental sense, God calls Samuel to go out and anoint a new king. And so here's where I want to join the story together. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. It's about, I don't know, probably a third of the way through the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 16. And we'll start in verse 
1. All right, 1 Samuel 16. We all there? Good, okay, cool. All right, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Okay, let's skip down to verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. See? Yeah. All right. We're on the same page now. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, what was it, as we're reading this, what was it that God saw in this youngest son of a no-name family who's a shepherd boy, which was not an illustrious job to have? What was it that God saw in him? What was it that made him stand out amongst all the other people in the nation? We're going to start to see an answer form as we continue this story. Now, we're going to pick back up in verse 14, but before we do that, there's one kind of important thing to note between 13 and 14, and it's this, that there's a significant amount of time. We don't know exactly how much time, but we can tell from the text that a significant amount of time has passed between the story we just finished and the story that we're going to continue on in the very next verse. So let's continue together in verse 14. Here's the next story. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. Right, let me just pause real here for just a moment, okay? Because this, uh, in our modern context, if you're, especially if you're coming at this fresh and you haven't read the Bible a lot and you're, you're not part of church culture, this sounds very weird to us, right? And so it's very helpful to remember and important to remember consistently that the Bible is not written in our modern context, right? So it's not written through our paradigm or through our presuppositions, but it's written in a very different context. And essentially what's happening here is that Saul is suffering and he's looking for any form of comfort. So let's continue in verse 17. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. 
Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So uh, Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. And whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. And then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Okay, so let's just back up here for a moment and remember all that's happened here. So David was likely a teenager. Some scholars think probably right around the age of 16 when this momentous thing happened in his life where the famous Samuel came into their small little community and anointed him in front of his brothers, choosing him. And then the Spirit, the text tells us, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And then what happens next? He goes back to normal life as a shepherd boy for a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but it's likely years before this next story takes place. And then David has the opportunity and goes to become a servant of the king as a a musician. And it's important that we don't have at least the the wrong image in our mind. This is not, don't picture uh, entering some kind of like grand palace or some kind of medieval castle, right? This was something that was a much more modest context. Picture more likely like a tent out on a small hill in the field. And so David is going in, and he must have been wondering throughout this time, both while he's continuing to be a shepherd as well as he's playing music for the king, he must have been wondering, what did this all mean? What did God have in store for him? Did he have a special plan for him or not? And if so, what was it? And maybe we can relate to this. Why was it taking so long? But I love this about David. Instead of grasping for power, instead of considering this role of shepherd or musician somehow beneath him, because he's like, I'm the chosen one, come on. No, no, no. Or playing the game of thrones. David is humble. And his humility leads him to serve faithfully right where God has him. And this is where we see a vital part of the character of David. We see that he's a man, a, a teen, and then a young man of great humility. And he's humble because he has a right-sized view of who God is, and therefore he has a right-sized view of who he is. Now, if this first story that we just read highlights David's humility in uh, modest circumstances, we're going to look at a second story that showcases his humility following failure. So I'm going to jump ahead, uh, and if you want to follow with me, to 2 Samuel uh, 24. So this is the very end of 2 Samuel. And these two stories... Are, they bookend the entire narrative in Samuel 1 and 2 about the life of David. And they highlight specific events that happen in David's life, but they also highlight patterns in his character that we see consistent throughout his entire life. And so in this final, and, and I'm going to jump in and out of the story so that we'll have some of the verses up on the screen as well. Uh, but in this final uh, story in Second Samuel, the first nine verses, 1 through 9, Uh, David is essentially asking his people to go out and count the military or the potential military forces. And this might sound kind of innocuous to us, might not sound like a big deal, but the fact is, this was a very big deal. Because in doing this, it communicated that David had no longer placed his faith and trust in God, but now was placing his faith in his military might. 
This was an act of significant pride by David. And we can tell that it was wrong by even how his army commander Joab responds in verse 3 when he asks him not to do this. But David's king, so he gets his way, right? And so he insists. And so over the next nine months, we see that his people go out and they count 1.3 million men who are able to fight in his military. So this was not a quick process. And now we're going to skip down to uh, chapter 24, verse 10, and these words will also be up on the screen. Uh, Verse 10, to see how David responds when he gets the results back. So here we go. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And then over the next few verses, there are serious consequences to David's failure of leadership. And so what we see happen is that God sends a plague on the entire nation, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people die. And David is witness to this suffering because of his failure and his mistakes. And so let's skip down to verse 17 to see how he responds. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And so David is king. He correctly understands what his role is supposed to be as king. He's a shepherd to the people. So at the beginning of the narrative, we see him being literally a shepherd to sheep. And by the end of the story, we see that he continues to be a shepherd, but it's over the nation of Israel. And here he's admitting that what he's done is wrong. And this is part that is so important for us to catch, is that what made David a uniquely gifted leader was not the fact that he was somehow better than everybody else, right? He did plenty of good things, but also messed up in plenty of ways. It was not that he was better, but that when he was confronted with his flaws, and they were many, and we'll look at them closer in the next couple weeks, they were many. He sincerely repented, and he cried out to God for forgiveness. Now, as I mentioned, David was a man after God's own heart, and vital to him being that man was the fact that he was humble. And both in times of modest living, as well as in the aftermath of significant failure, he responds with sincere humility. And in doing that, he also foreshadows the hoped-for king, the perfect king that the nation of Israel has been waiting for for millennium, that they've been waiting for. And this king will be born roughly a thousand years after David. And as was foretold, the Messiah Jesus, who came from the line of David, was born, and he was fully God and fully man. And Jesus humbled himself fully for us. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, records it this way. This is part of an ancient psalm, an ancient song. Jesus, uh, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that. So he, he had all the power, all the authority. He could rule and do whatever he wants. And yet, what does he do? Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we see modeled in the life of David and then perfected in the person of Jesus, a life of authentic and genuine humility. And for those of us here in this room who are trying to follow Jesus in our lives, and we're trying to just muck through what that looks like in our workplace, and our families, day to day, right? Trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. I just want to continue down that path. What does that look like? Well, for the, us, it is vital that we are practicing humility in our own lives. In 22 different places in Scripture, uh, the same sentiment that's recorded in James 4, 6 is, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as one of my uh, old co-workers was fond of saying, we don't want God opposing us, do we? But humility, this is one of those really tricky things, isn't it? Because it's really hard, if maybe not impossible, for us to be self-aware of this, right? I, if I'm honest with you all, it is way easier for me to see pride in other people than it is myself, right? Like it's pretty, actually, I'm pretty good at seeing it in other people. Pride, 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 pride. <laughs> Not pointing at anybody specific, just, you know, you're like, I think he pointed at me. No, no. But if it's about myself, I'm usually like, I'm trying pretty hard. I'm, I'm doing all right. Right? It's hard to see. But there's a couple points of application um, from the life of David that I think can be helpful for us as individuals as well as a community as we're striving to look more and more and act more and more like Jesus. So one way that we can reflect the same humility modeled, rather, by David is to be faithful to serve those around us wherever God might have us, whatever context we find ourselves in. So in the case of David, he faithfully served Saul, trusting that God was in control. And so no matter your context, how can you humbly serve the people around you? So maybe you're a, a stay-at-home parent, and you spend most of your time with little people. And those little people, uh, they don't say thank you a whole lot. In fact, they say a lot of me, me, I want, no, and throw themselves on the floor. I don't know. That's just maybe just my kids. I don't know. Or maybe, uh, <clears throat> maybe your people are in the workplace, in the office, and you have some coworkers that just, oh, <laughs> just a little bit annoying. Or you have a, a, a supervisor that you just, you have a hard time respecting. Or you have neighbors. Or maybe it's people in the hallways at high school and middle school. Or in a college classroom. Where are you right now in life where you can be faithfully serving those around you? And I just want you to take a moment, just in your minds, just try to picture a couple specific people. Who are some people in your life, right where you're at? that you can be faithfully serving and taking steps to serve even more. Because one way of demonstrating humility is by serving faithfully those around you right where you are in life right now, right where God has you. Not where you're going to be someday, not waiting until that next thing, not waiting until you're somewhere else, but like right now, however modest those circumstances may be. I love the story of a man, um, of Dieter Zanders is his name. <clears throat> a few of you might know this name. So he was a, a somewhat well-known uh, worship leader, artist, pastor, speaker. 
uh, who, amongst other things, he led worship at a church called Willow Creek Church, which is down outside of Chicago, uh, and is one of the largest churches in the entire country. And in the 90s and early 2000s, he was um, kind of within the evangelical Christian world. He was a rising star. His life, his career was going up and to the right. He was very frequently traveling all over the country, all over the world, leading conferences and speaking, and, and just, you know, things were going well for him. And then in 2008, he suffered a significant stroke. And he went into a coma for six days. And then he woke up a changed man. He could no longer play piano. He could no longer sing. And in fact, he could barely speak. And I want to read to you part of a poem about his journey of learning to serve faithfully right where God had him. So listen to these words. Here's what he says. If I am the king of all I survey, then I am the king of cardboard and spoils. My kingdom is a noisy, windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store. Here are the haphazard stacks of empty cardboard boxes. Here is the giant box baler. Here are the shopping carts marked spoils, their wireframes brimming with still good fruit, meat, and flowers. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, he defines kingdom as a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. My kingdom used to be on a stage, a microphone, a piano, and an audience of thousands. My kingdom was a performance, a show, a sham. And then came the stroke. Now, five days a week, I arrive at Trader Joe's in the early dark hours before the sun cracks the horizon. I push my mop up and down aisles, sweep my broom into corners to collect the debris from the day before. The store is quiet, empty. There is one audience in this kingdom. And that's okay. Because I'm not performing. There's no stage dealer here. No Superman trying or seeking to wow the masses with feats of spiritual strength. It's just me, just Dieter. The guy who mops the floor, who bails the empty cardboard boxes for recycling, who delivers the spoils to the Salvation Army. And there's something beautiful about this simple, menial work. A humble person someone who actively serves those around them no matter where God has them. How are we doing with that? Now, if we want to get really honest about this, a good tip for you is to uh, ask somebody close to you that you trust and just ask them the question, am I somebody who is faithful to serving those around me and how could I do that better? And then ask them to be honest. (laughs) Okay, so let's just take a moment right now Turn to the people next to you, and I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. That'd be super awkward. All the new people are like, this is my last time. It's been great. But really, I would love to encourage you later today on the car ride home or tonight, ask somebody that you love and you trust to say, hey, am I, just please be honest with me, am I a person who faithfully serves those around you, and how could I do that better? The second way that we can reflect the humility modeled by David is to respond in the same way to moral failure. So we're, we are all like David, 
uh, and that we are flawed human beings, right? Like our behavior is a mixed bag of good and bad things. And we all have the opportunity to be like David when we repent. Because this is so important, and we get this wrong, I think, all the time. As Christians, our lives are now not perfect all the time, right? We're perfected in Christ, but our behavior is not perfect all the time. And to let on like that's the case just sets us up for hypocrisy and to look like a bunch of judgmental people. Now, our narrative, our story, is that we are forgiven by grace and grace alone. And in that place, there is tons of freedom and joy. And it also gives us the freedom to admit when we mess up in big ways and in small ways. And just like David, we still, have the, we still experience the fallout of when we make wrong decisions, right? But there's something amazing that happens when we humbly admit our mistakes to one another and invite God's grace into our lives. I don't know if you've been witness to this before, but there is just something incredibly powerful that happens in our lives as individuals, and even more so when it happens corporately, when we are a people that repent. I love how uh, pastor and author Rick McKinley writes these words in his book, A Beautiful Mess. These words will be up on the screen. He writes this. We need to repent often. We need to repent, for example, of our convenient assumption that following Jesus and pursuing the American dream are in complete harmony and will take us pretty much the same direction. They won't. The reality of the kingdom is dangerous and beautiful and life-altering. We need to repent of smugly held beliefs, especially the so-called enlightened ones, that convince us that we have no need to repent. We need to repent of our rightness, our arrogant belief that since we care about good things, for example, we see genocide for the evil that it is. We'll see every evil for what it is, including the evil in our own hearts. There is a goodness that permeates our community when we become a people who are quick to repent. And so I want to take a moment together just to listen. And if this is strange for you, just, you know, close your eyes and just take this as a time to focus on your breathing. But for everybody else, I want to just ask you, close your eyes for just a moment. And I want us to listen. And what I want us to listen for is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to ask him, is there anything in our lives that we need to repent from? As we listen, if there's any prompting in our minds or our hearts, I would ask that you pray that God would give you the courage and the humility to respond in obedience. And here's my hope for us, is that we would be a community that is humbly learning from David, and that we be humble people who are faithfully serving those around us wherever God might have us. And that we might be people who are quick to repent so that we, as a church to Creek, can more fully experience the grace of God and then more fully extend that grace to those around us. Let me pray for us.
God, I'm in awe of the fact that I can be praying right now and trusting that you hear us and that you're the same God who spoke all of creation into existence and also got down on your hands and knees to wash your disciples' feet and later gave up yourself on the cross. Praise you that you are a God that is humble. And I pray for us as a community, for myself, for everybody else in this space, that as we are striving to follow you, help us to learn from David's example and from your perfected example of being humble people so that that would be to your glory.